as part of trying to open out the relevant territory for our uh, contemplation, for our consideration and gaze, and, and as part of trying to unpack some of the questions and reflections and considerations that I want to um, offer and bring bring forth. Uh, let me pick up on something I mentioned in the talk the other evening. Um, the fact that it seems to me, at least, that there's a, almost a, a lack, if, if not if not a kind of taboo, on a kind of moral education uh, in our society, especially for people, um, let's say, beyond 18 years old, and even even uh, younger than that. It's uh, rare to, to find um, an overt emphasis and thrust um, towards ethical education of human beings in our society. Um, of course, there are uh, paradigms and programs and visions and frameworks of personal and psychological and spiritual development and growth uh, that would pertain to adults uh, above 18 um, and traditions of that. And so... As part of what I, as part of what I want to, uh, of the whole consideration, um, what I wonder if we look at a couple of those paradigms and look at uh, the, the the tremendous gifts they bring and how they support our growth and also uh, potentially support our ethical growth, our growth in terms of our relationship with with morality, and look as well at some of the potential uh, lacunae, gaps, blind spots, and um, limits that such paradigms and uh, traditions and frameworks might have. Uh, So lacunae and limits regarding certainly... um, the relationship with morality and moral development, if, if you like, of the human being, but also, uh, because it's related, how one conceives of and senses oneself, other human beings in the world. So I don't want to um, replace such paradigms um, and declare them Wrong or anything like that, and uh, but in, in in shining a light on them and uh, certain aspects of them, at least, um, is is it possible? I wonder that that uh, something can be added. What can be added to them? So perhaps we can consider some of the usual ways. Perhaps we think about and approach uh, development, psychological, spiritual development and personal development, and where it's limited, and then how, what might be added to that, what might be complementary, not so much as uh, um, 
replacing, as I said, but complementary or extending um, what's already there, what's already available through that. And um, the two principal possibilities I want to offer through these talks for that sort of um, addition or extension uh, will will be imaginal practice. Um, so I want to include imaginal practice as one possibility of, of potential extensions, and that includes, as I said, um, how we sense then the self, others, world, also our desire. So really the whole sensing with soul um, avenue. And secondly, and related, what, what I'm not quite sure what to call it, but something like the ideational imaginal or the ideological imaginal or imaginal ideas, which I've touched on briefly, I think, in the last um, few years. Uh, but I want to say a little bit more about, and particularly with the ideas uh, of value and virtue, values and virtues, and their relationship with soul-making. So principally these two, imaginal practices we've, as we've talked about it so far, and then, and then also a kind of extension of imaginal practice into what we might call the ideational imaginal, or imaginal ideas or ideological imaginal. Now, all, all these uh, strands or areas are, are not really separable, um, so it would be nice to go through the talks here and kind of do a chunk on this and then a separate chunk on that. And I don't think that's really possible, but I'm going to try and separate them a little bit, but some interweaving is just inevitable, so that's just part of the deal. But the two, I'm very broadly speaking now, but the two paradigms I would like to consider uh, of personal psychological spiritual development are psychotherapy and Buddha Dharma. Now, of course, there are two extremely broad uh, categories there. So uh, we're not talking about one thing when we talk about psychotherapy, nor are we talking about one thing when we talk about Buddha Dharma. There's many different kinds. So in what I say in terms of considering the gifts and the l- limitations of what might be involved in those paradigms, you know, there's the danger of generalization. And so I apologize in advance uh, uh, for that. Um, if I qualify everything, really the talks will go on forever, but um, I hope you get the general drift and the uh, soul intention behind the soul's intention behind uh, what I'm saying, and that this can be uh, an inquiry grounded in love and care. So uh, we're not talking really about one either of these things is one thing, psychotherapy or Buddha Dharma, certainly many different kinds. And of course, there'll be individual differences among people who are part of a certain sub-tradition of Buddha Dharma or a certain kind of psychotherapy. There'll be individual differences in how they digest, assimilate, respond to what they take or leave, um, how they... How they uh, relate to, to those particular teachings or invitations or, or trainings.
So we can see, just again, very broadly speaking, with psychotherapy at its best, um, you know, it has the uh, promise and potential to, to free a human being up from a kind of too much uh, torment of, of the psyche and um, of, of the person and the kind of self-hatred or incapacitating inner critic, etc., and to open the heart, and in so doing develop empathy, and emotional skill and capacity uh, of the heart, and also relational skills. So all that is possible, and in, in that freeing up, in that opening the heart, in that development of the empathy and the emotional capacity and the re- relational uh, skill and um, capacity, then that can uh, open up and support the, the capacity and the tendency for ethical care. So at its best, that would be um, a fruit uh, of, of psychotherapy. At its best is that it really um, works on the heart and the relationship and the being and um, and, and the psyche in, in a way that that makes it more possible to be uh, more open uh, with regard to ethics and to, to be more sensitive, to be more caring, to be more discerning, to be more courageous, all these things. At its worst, and again, this is too general a statement, but at its worst, um, people can be in certain psychotherapies or relate to certain psychotherapies sometimes for many years and it may be hard for them to to realize it from the inside but what they can become is a kind of a tendency to actually become a little more self-preoccupied than they were before. So it kind of feeds and forms uh, uh, an ongoing state of being of self-preoccupation the gaze is turned inward, concerned with my process, my growth, my, 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 my neurosis, my patterns, my, my family, my, my, etc. And there's a kind of contraction of the being and a lessening of the availability and the uh, um, availability for uh, ethical sensitivity and openness and care. The antennae are not so even tuned that way because they are self-preoccupied primarily um, in certain ways. And perhaps also certain psychotherapies or certain ways of relating to certain psychotherapies may also um, breed a kind of uh, attitude of entitlement that one looks at one's past or family or upbringing or whatever and one feels, I never got what I needed. And so one tries to, uh, one thinks one is justified in compensating uh, for that um, in one's life and in one's choices and in one's um, relationship to society, and etc. And uh, again, that that movement there may not be uh, may not allow so much of an opening and a care for ethics. So that would be at its at its worst, I suppose. Uh, some 
some of what's possible <clears throat> in some kinds of psychotherapeutic uh, paradigms and relationships or trainings. When it's in its gifts, you know, we can see that the Dharma uh, would, would have similarly similar um, potentials and promises to free up the psyche from a kind of torment that uh, incapacitates it in terms of its care for others and its ethical care and concern uh, from the inner critic to similarly can open the heart and the capacities for empathy and the uh, the general, the capacities of the heart in general, etc. And there is, in addition, there is in in the Dharma, of course, there is this emphasis on sila, sila samadhi panya, and so the ethics is right there to some extent or other, right from the beginning. It's not ignored. Some psychotherapies will not even mention ethics unless it's a legal matter uh, where the therapist then feels obliged to. Um, tell the police something or, or, or is torn in, in some way um, there's also in the Dharma the uh, teachings of the emptiness of self so um, at least theoretically there's the possibility of or there's the restraining of the possibility of sort of endless um, self preoccupation and of course there's the uh, encouragement and the teachings for the cultivation of Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion um, appreciative joy, etc. Um, but you know, a few things about about practices in general, whether it's the practice of psychotherapy as a client or as a therapist, or the practice of dharma, is that practices can evolve in unforeseen ways. Once one gets into a practice and you start, it's like sailing um, sailing a boat, when you start dealing with the uh, what's coming up in practice and what life throws at you and how practice says to uh, respond to it through the lens of certain, you know, those teachings or those paradigms or that framework. And the fact is, as, as one gets into practice and sort of into that that vocabulary and that way of looking at things and the techniques and the approaches, um, it can evolve in unforeseen ways so that from inside of that practice, inside of that trajectory, we're not always clear that we're... uh, It's not always clear if we're off balance. We're dealing with all this stuff through... Um, whatever it is, um, this stuff coming up, this stuff from my past, this stuff in my family, this in my situation, in my work, or whatever, through through certain lenses, and in the very close dealing with it through through those lenses, sometimes um, uh, we can get we can get a little off balance. It's almost like the lenses a bit like horses' uh, blinkers. They are blinders. They don't. They they may close our view. Um, in certain ways, and in that we can get off balance in ways that we don't even realize. And the whole practice can evolve in unforeseen ways. And sometimes you step out and you think, "How on earth did I get there? How did I get there?" In addition to that, it's really important to point out, as a general point, that um, any conceptual framework um, will bring limitations. 
any conceptual framework by and any any idea, any concept and any conceptual framework, any logos, whether it's a Dharma logos or psychotherapy logos, whatever it is, anything else, brings with it automatically its own set of limitations. It sets us up to see and to ponder and to respond and to process things in certain ways. It opens the eyes to certain factors and closes them to others. Opens the consideration, the heart to certain things and closes them to others, the view, etc. That um, inherent fact of some or other limitations that go with conceptual frameworks. It also goes with the soul-making paradigm. Any conceptual framework. So I, I don't want to say all this. I don't want to replace um, psychotherapy or dharma with soul-making at all. Um, but just uh, because soul-making dharma will also have its limitations. And also its blind spots and its dangers. But it's a really, I think... Um, point of wisdom and maturity uh, that's necessary to emphasize that any conceptual framework um, to do with anything will bring its limitations. So when we talk about psychotherapy or this psychotherapy or that kind of psychotherapy or this kind of dharma or that kind of dharma, it will bring its limitations. And with that, there's the possibility of limited and um, limited and inadequate uh, views, responses, capacities inadequate in with respect to the kinds of uh, moral challenges and situations that humanity faces today. So there is that, that, that possibility um, that some of these paradigms and trainings will be or that possibly that all of them will be limited in some way. And so it, it, it kind of behooves us to have a look, well, how is, can, what are the possible limitations? What do I need to look out for? Is there a way of, when I see a possible limitation or inadequacy, how can I expand it? What might be possible? So the kinds of things we want to consider, they do not apply to everyone. And again, there's danger of overgeneralizing there. Um, of course they won't, because as I said, people will be within a certain, two people in the very same paradigm or teaching or training or whatever, will take it in differently and respond and digest uh, uh, differently. Second thing I should say, um, as a sort of caveat to all this, is that certainly from where I sit um, right now, uh, everything seems to be changing very fast in the Dharma world. Now, I, in the Dharma world in particular, in the wider society, now, I hardly go out anymore because of my illness, so I'm, I'm at home, I'm not sort of there talking to a lot of people. But it seems to me, um, and maybe it's just my friends and students I, I do uh, still see and mix with and hear from, but it seems that um, uh, very quick and, and sometimes surprising changes. So sometimes I look at people who, uh, for instance, with regard to climate change and species extinction, for years haven't seemed to be interested in that at all, and then very suddenly, uh, on fire. On fire and deeply, deeply committed, investing a lot of time, energy, taking a lot of risks, um, 
working very hard in those areas. Something has happened, perhaps with the, um, the sort of explosive growth of the Extinction Rebellion uh, movement, particularly in England, and uh, perhaps other factors. Um, so some of that, some of those cases were really surprising to me, and it was a really pleasant surprise. I'm not sure how widespread it is, but certainly it's it's becoming much more widespread. Uh, and in a way, what that indicates to me is that whatever I might say regarding, for instance, ethics and dharma or, or whatever, um, and those kind of considerate the need to consider expanding our our. Expanding our dharma to expand our ethical sense and deepen our ethical sensibility. Whatever I might say here is is only going to be one factor um, in in the mix of what galvanizes and supports and allows and opens uh, th- that kind of expansion. Um, and so, it might be, for instance, with the XR uh, Extinction Rebellion movement, in, in which in the UK, it depends where you are listening now, but in the UK it's um, it's really uh, taken off. I'm sure there's many people in our UK society who've never even heard of it, but uh, for others it's really become a thing, <coughs> and, uh, you know, mainstream news, etc. But, and it might be with the Extinction Rebellion that w- one of the factors is just is just the fact that when more people are um, brought together and there's this kind of safety and support in numbers, that's something I want to return to, and the kind of platforms and mechanisms are, are made available, then something, uh, then that kind of um, ethical stand, if you like, if that's what we call it, ethical stand, becomes much more possible. Whereas if one was alone in that, and without the structures and uh, 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 the supporting structures, um, then one would be just relying on one's own kind of penetrative ethical um, alignment and devotion and and discrimination, and that's a lot harder. But anyway, what that points to is, as I said, that what that very pleasant surprise and the suddenness of all that points to is that whatever I might say in, the, in, in these talks about ethics and dharma and opening that up is just one is just one piece, one factor. And the third thing to say is that um, related to what I started this uh, ethics talk uh, saying that I regard ethics and this this whole investigation as kind of endless, potentially endless. Um, a corollary of that is that there's always more growth possible in our relationship with ethics. There's always more growth possible. So if in trying to kind of open up this subject and elucidate, we look at this tradition or we look at that kind of teaching or we look at um, this paradigm or whatever and we say, oh, that could be limited in this way and that could be limited in that way. It's, it's, um, it, that will always be the case because, as I said, limitations will go with any conceptual framework and there's uh, also this, op- this endlessness. So however unlimited we get, we can get even more 
unlimited, even more growth with regard to ethics, even more sensitivity, even more discernment, even more um, range and depth and height with regard to ethics. So that means, really, whoever, um, me, whether it's me or anyone else, um, saying, oh, why don't we think about it this way, or we could think about it this way, there will still be more growth possible, and therefore um, considerations to point out, oh, what about this, what about that, is it possible to do out this? So let's... let's um, consider a, a few things and um, start just with a little couple of things about um, psychotherapy. So I was talking um, a little while ago with a student in the States and she was reporting to me uh, that she was working with a therapist, I think, regularly and for a while. And there was some situation, I can't remember exactly how the situation arose, Uh, it might have to do it might have had to do with where she was living in relationship to where her workplace was i'm not sure but at any rate she was considering uh, buying a second house or a second property and she was you know starting that whole process of looking and investigating and going to see places and, and things like that and at some point in this process, she became uh, really concerned uh, whether it was the right thing to do for ethical reasons. <clears throat> uh, that a second place would um, also mean a lot more driving, and she was concerned about her carbon emissions from driving. Um, uh, also, the sort of just having to buy more stuff, more furniture, more clothes, etc. If you've got two two places, and she was talking about this dilemma and her feelings about it with her therapist, and part of her process in in uh, or alongside and sort of woven into this whole consideration, this difficulty, and this. Dif- decision that she was trying to make was also an image and she was beginning to explore a little bit of the imaginal and uh, one of the images that came was a monk uh, this imaginal monk character who had a as part of his mode and his his calling was a, a, a movement towards renunciation and so she was trying to explain to the therapist her feelings and her unsurenesses and um, her wanting, her consideration, seriously considering giving up um, the whole idea of buying a second property and uh, regarding it as an act of renunciation that she felt even some, she felt moved by that and a sense of almost devotion that was tied in with this imaginal monk monk character and the therapist as she was trying to explain all this just started shaking her head and sort of tutting and uh, regarded uh, this this whole movement as some kind of denial that she was in uh, denial about um, 
the pain of having having to uh, uh, give up this second property uh, idea, and the, the the denial of kind of wanting to feel the grief. Um, so she dismissed the imaginal figure of the monk and the renuncia as not real, as delusional, as a delusional protective mechanism against this grief of not buying a second house. Per- perhaps um, the client had already decided not to buy a second house or was explaining the process. I can't remember exactly how it transpired. But basically the therapist was heard it through a certain lens that this is, um, this is a protective mechanism against grief and all this monk business and the devotion about renunciation is is just a kind of um, unreal, delusional, uh, protective mechanism there. Uh, What's then clearly not on the psychotherapist's map at that point is the whole uh, idea and territory of a kind of ethical passion of the soul's care for for virtue, for for ethical virtue, it's not on her psychological map of what it means to care for the self, of what it means to heal, of what human growth and purpose involves. Um, so this uh, this struck uh, my student, you know, very strongly, and it, it really didn't sit very well with her. And we talked about it. So I don't think this is an isolated case. And I wonder, I think part of my larger point is, do therapists and do psychotherapeutic paradigms need to expand their vision and their logos to include the psychological trauma and pain of ecological decline, for example? And the... uh, psychological trauma and pain, I'm using those words uh, deliberately, trauma and pain, of, for example, not choosing uh, in one's life in line with uh, loving loving the earth or in line with what speaks to one's soul more, more nobly in terms of virtue, etc. So that it may then become part of how people think and feel and choose and what they respect. Now, the psychological thinking, psychotherapeutic thinking, has a lot of clout in our culture. It's spread from, you know, the confines of um, Freud's couch on, in Vienna uh, all those years ago to become just kind of woven into our our normal ways of considering life and human being and self and our relationship with existence. So just as childhood trauma and um, a feeling of my needs were not met in childhood, whatever they were, just as these have become normalized in the wider culture through psychotherapeutic um, paradigms, through the normalization of psychotherapeutic paradigms and the kind of airing of that uh, through media and all kinds of uh, phenomena. They've become normal ideas. Childhood trauma, they weren't before. My needs are unmet. Um, These are very uh, specific contemporary cultural uh, points of view, manifestations, ways of understanding and again, conceiving and sensing and feeling ourselves and life. 
and so and just as um, self and self-expression or the creativity of the self or the individuality of self, these two, through psychotherapeutic thinking, have become, partly through psychotherapeutic thinking, have become very normalized. They're part of what we consider our right to address and to heal and to include, part of what uh, we consider as um, healthy visioning and sense of one's existence, uh, part of our normal normally accepted goals in life or again human uh, relational in- intimacy it wasn't that normal uh, a few hundred years ago to think about um, how to think about human intimate relationships in the way that we do now and the vision we have of them the hope and the goal I want to work towards that kind of relationship, that kind of vision of intimacy. This has all come about partly through through various factors, but but the way psychotherapeutic thinking spreads out from the from the counselling room into society, and and so that in the wider culture, certain ideas with corresponding uh, goals and rights um, become normalised in that wider culture. So, do psychotherapists, do, do, does there need to be an expanding of the paradigm to include, as I said, the, um, the whole realm of psychic trauma and grief and pain and rage at ecological de- decline and also at the, the kind of grief and remorse of not having, uh, not choosing in line with that deep care? either deep care for the earth or deep care for one's um, ethical sensibilities. So some of you will be familiar with the term, um, what's it called, spiritual bypassing. So uh, that is um, quite a common accusation um, by psychotherapist and, and it has definitely some ground um, uh, so implying a kind of bypassing uh, of psychological and emotional wounds by spiritual thought and practice so one gets involved in uh, in a spiritual practice and then starts having spiritual ideas and a spiritual paradigm and a spiritual outlook and uh, practice and Wonderful as that can be, it can also be a kind of bypassing of what needs looking at in terms of one's psychological patterns and wounding. Uh, what's also important to point out is that often sometimes what, what also might be bypassed are political and social and environmental wounds and callings. So you can look at spiritual paradigms and say, okay, there can be psychological bypass. Uh, sorry, there can be spiritual bypassing of psychological wounds. There can also be political and social environmental um, uh, factors and wounds and callings that are bypassed in that. But as much as we talk about spiritual bypassing, is there not also the possibility of what would we call it psychotherapeutic bypassing? That is, concentrating on one's personal psychological healing and wounds from certain perspectives. Everything is always from certain perspectives. I can't get away from that. 
whatever I look at, whatever I relate to, whatever I try to heal, um, is looked at through certain perspectives. They're either conscious and considered, or they're not. Um, but concentrating on one's personal psychological healing and wounds from certain perspectives may not be addressing or responding um, fully or very much at all to the soul, the spirit, or to the social and environmental. So yes, you can talk about spiritual bypassing, but we need to add to that the possibility of psychological bypassing. Not not long ago, someone wrote me an email and uh, had a student, and hadn't been in touch with them for a few months, and and um, I think the last interview we'd had, there was a lot of um, anxiety and torment and, and real difficulty that they were experiencing, and they wrote me an email, and uh, just just recently, and so by the way, you know, a lot of that um, difficulty I was experiencing, I now realise was I was not letting myself open to the magnitude and the depth of my uh, torment and my feelings and my grief and my pain about the wider ecological devastation, climate change, the um, the future even of the next few decades and, and how that hangs in the balance for humanity and for so many other species, the massive species loss and the toll, the impact that had on the psyche. And he said, I was trying so much to look for a personal reason and looking at my past and working in therapy and doing this and that and it was coming into my practice and I was trying to um, understand it. I was looking at it with with through the lens of a certain paradigm, a certain narrow paradigm. And then I realized, actually, this is something else. And in realizing it was something else, I could begin to open to it. I could give it its place and give it its due and begin allowing the heart to feel it, to respond to it, to care for that. And said, it's a lot, but I feel much better. It's now not sabotaging uh, me in ways that I just cannot get a handle on and um, and cannot understand. One more small, well, it's not small, but a large piece here, but I'll just mention it briefly and I, I, I hope to return to it, is um, as I mentioned that we have what, what we might call a kind of pandemic or epidemic of um, the inner critic in our culture and it partly goes with a culture of individualism a culture where there's less community more alienation um, from from each other from uh, wider social networks from the earth from society and this emphasis on individual individualism in what I was calling an immature way and one of the flip sides of that one of the shadow sides of that one of the inevitable uh, cost of that is a rise in in a critic and the afflictions of that and so sometimes that's a lot of what people will bring into not just a dharma context but but a psychotherapeutic context as well so in a critic some people call it superego which is a word that freud coined and um, I just quote from 
Alistair MacIntyre again from After Virtue uh, about that. And he says, important was Freud's presentation of the inherited conscience as superego, as an irrational part of ourselves whose commands we need for the sake of our psychic health to be freed from. In other words, I actually think that's an oversimplification of Freud's views, but it's fine for now. Um, in other words, what Alistair McIntyre is saying is Freud um, presented this sense of superego as a kind of irrational part of ourselves that we need to, through, through psychoanalysis, liberate ourselves from its oppression. So it's not really um, uh, something to be respected so much. That's where I think Alison McIntyre is simplifying a little bit. But but it's rather to, uh, to for us to work through it and to be liberated from it. And then uh, Alison McIntyre continues, Freud, of course, took himself to have made a discovery about morality as such, and not just about what morality had become in late 19th century and early 20th century Europe. So again, this um, cultural and uh, historical contingency. Freud was dealing with such a, a limited um, range of population at a certain time in in in, uh, in uh, Europe, northern Europe, in fact, and um, what that uh, you know, and then and then generalizing from that sort of um, subset of the population to, to make universal truths, and not realizing the historical contingency. But actually, the point is more that. Um, Morality then, in a way, gets relativized as something irrational. Conscience, rather, in a way, gets relativized. And um, that portion of morality that has to do with conscience gets um, undermined or put on shaky foundations when it's regarded as just an irrational part of ourselves, something oppressive that we need to get rid of. What I want to ask or throw into the mix here is um, now... At this time, in our wider culture, what do um, Dharma practitioners and teachers, or Diamond Heart practitioners and teachers, or psychotherapists, um, uh, either as those uh, psychotherapists or their clients, um, believe and disseminate about conscience? It's not a word we hear that much anymore, is it? We certainly hear inner critic, and if you're in... For example, Ridwan, they talk about superego. But conscience is not, not a word we hear much anymore. At least I, I don't hear it much. Um, so, in other words, is that word conscience getting uh, um, eclipsed or put into the bag of uh, superego, its inner critic? And is there something of... of something that's actually necessary in our uh, moral development, our moral capacity and sensibility, that's then getting regarded in, in ways that, that make it irrelevant. Do you understand? What does it do to our sense of morality when we lose that word conscience? When our only relationship with guilt is um, afflictive, and when things are just regarded in either in inner critic terms or superego terms.
actually maybe that word afflictive doesn't really capture what I'm trying to say. Um, perhaps a better word would be immature in the sense that if our relationship with guilt is immature, it might be trapped, either either trapped in the whirlpool of self-recrimination and looking back in the past in a way that's very contracted, very solidified, very painful, not actually very helpful and not productive and not um, orienting or leading onward in terms of future action. So that would be one kind of immaturity. Or, perhaps at other times, a kind of um, shunning of guilt, a refusal to feel it and an, an avoiding of it, just, just want to get rid of it. So there's nothing seen as positive or redeeming or helpful in guilt. So that also would be a kind of immature relationship with guilt. So either on the one side or the other, the relationship with guilt can be immature. Maybe, and we'll come back to this, maybe there can be other relationships with this whole notion of guilt and conscience that are more helpful. So we just pause for a moment and recap what we're, what we're doing here. Um, looking at the whole area of ethics, of course, and trying to open up and, and interested in the relationship of soul with ethics and ethics with soul. And and as part of that, kind of shining a light in a, in a really overgeneralized way, but hopefully a little bit helpful, to shining a light on um, some of the kinds of paradigms of growth and development that we encounter that are around at, at the present time, and seeing where they might have holes, gaps, blind spots, etc. in them. And in the process, wondering what what can we add to that, and uh, beginning, as as I go on, beginning to add considerations and possibilities in terms of what we know of soul-making practice, sensing with soul up till now, and then perhaps there are others, as I said, when we talk more about values and virtues and other ways of thinking about ethics and thinking about so-called personal development and our the growth of our soul, and how that might um, augment the range of possibilities and perspectives. So if we turn now to Dharma, to Buddha Dharma, and that wider tradition, and uh, try and shine a light there, again, just pausing just briefly, you know, it can be hard sometimes, for lots of different reasons, to um, to shine this kind of spotlight on one's own tradition if one feels one loves a tradition or is identified with a tradition, with belonging to a certain tradition. It can be hard to critique it, to question it. It can be hard to even spot what's wrong or admit that there may be something missing, etc. But maybe if we love a tradition, we have a duty of love to that tradition, and that part of that duty is to, to care for it, like we care for, I don't know, a, a car or a musical instrument that needs uh, repairing or has a, a hole here or there or whatever it is, you know. Um, there's, there's maybe a duty of love if we love uh, a tradition and a body of teaching. And that's part of what I was talking about. What is it to be in dialogue with the tradition? 
that there's, uh, m- maybe as Alistair McIntyre was saying in those passages we read about when we talked about tradition, that to, uh, for, for a tradition to be healthy, to be vital, um, it, it needs some uh, strands of conflict, of argument, of debate, of dialogue, uh, to keep it healthy. So that's part of what a living tradition is. To be and and uh, someone who is living a tradition, um, I would say, is in should be in dialogue uh, with that tradition. And another reflection here that might be helpful is, again, always to, I I think, always to be aware that whatever light we shine on anything, whatever way we look at anything, um, so if that's in the context of a practice and the, the paradigms and perspectives of, of a certain practice, we'll tend to look at whatever it is, self and the elements of existence, from certain perspectives. They frame it um, along certain lines, within within a certain scope, in a conceptual framework, and look at it through certain lenses, shine a light from it from certain directions, um, and that's part of what makes uh, a body of teaching, or a tradition, or a practice, or uh, etc. So, if you think if you think in that sense, then there's always going to be shadow. Shadow will always be there. We will never get rid of shadow. And I'm using that word shadow in a very specific way. So it's come to um, it's come to mean something quite narrow. I think Jung was the first one to introduce it. I think. And it's come to mean something more and more narrow, just as if it's the sort of shunned parts of oneself, the ignored, the unconscious parts of oneself that are negative or destructive, and that usually have their roots in uh, some pain in childhood or something like that, or in the development. I want to use it uh, in, a, in a much broader sense, in the sense of imagine a light shining on an object, any object. That light shining on that object, that whole gestalt there of the light and the object, will cause a shadow. The other side, opposite, opposite, uh, on the opposite side of the object from the light, the opposite side of the object, the object that's being illuminated, there will be a shadow, a shadow of that object. And if I turn, uh, shine the light from a different direction, from a different angle, a different perspective, the shadow will be different. It will, it will. Um, Shape, be shaped differently, it will fall in a different area, etc. So basically, any time we shine a light on anything, any time we look in a certain way, any time we frame our vision and our gaze and our practice and our thinking and our conceiving in certain ways, there will be shadow uh, associated with that. It's just the way consciousness works. So again, it's not to single out this or that tradition or practice psychotherapy or Buddha Dharma, this kind of therapy or that kind of Dharma, and say, oh, that's that's uh, bad or rubbish or incompetent or anything like that. It's a, a more mature understanding is that whatever practice we do, whatever conceptual framework, whatever tradition we're in, it will have its shadows, and we're never going to get rid of shadows as long as there is light. There is shadow. You understand? So, for example, uh, Jung, who coined the term shadow, as far as I I think, um, he often uh, gets critiqued um, 
for not including so much uh, developmental psychology in his uh, and, and ego psychology in his um, in his whole uh, framework and paradigm. And then, of course, we can look at those who emphasize a lot about childhood wounding and the development of the child, etc. And, as we've done already, touch on some of the ways there will be a shadow cast from that. I'm missing the socio-political, the economic, the environmental uh, effects, and maybe missing um, soul or spirituality. Spirituality may may have the shadow of psycho, uh, of spiritual bypassing, avoid, you know. So, there's Wherever we shine the light, there will be a shadow. Whenever there's light, there's shadow. Okay. Another related reflection is, and we'll come back to this, is that part of the problem here in discussing ethics, or, or if we kind of put our finger on a, a central element of the diagnosis here, the whole situation, is that all these different traditions, you might say, as much as they shine light from a different direction, um, they also, uh, another way of saying it is that there's, uh, a, between different traditions or practices or frameworks, there's different uh, weightings and um, prioritizing of, of different values. So in the, in the whole range of different moral values, and then using that word moral really widely, um, we can emphasize this or that or this one above that one, uh, this one to to the extent of almost ignoring that one, and vice versa. And so, partly what's happening here, and partly what happens in a lot of the sort of superficial and often loud and strident uh, arguments and hecklings that, that go on in our society, is there's there's just a discrepancy between which between the relative valuing of different moral values between two parties. Um, anyway, we'll re- we'll return to that. But all that is all that is is just to say again, we're not um, singling out any one tradition for uh, criticism or, or or something like that. It's really part of the whole um, part of the whole endeavor of looking at mor- morals and moral considerations, that these, um, these, sh- these shadows and these uh, differences in, in valuing uh, will be inevitable. As I say, it's part of also duty of love to, to look at that and to question. It's part of the honesty, it's part of the integrity, it's part of the the rub of true relationship with a tradition, with a body of teaching that one loves, with a logos. So if we turn our gaze just briefly, and, and again in too, too speedy and superficial a way, onto Buddha Dharma and the different kinds of Buddha Dharma, for example, um, and see where some of those might have gaps, lacunae, limitations uh, with regard to their relationship with uh, the kinds of um, openings of morality that I think are needed in our day and age. When we look at um, sort of traditional Theravada and Buddha Dharma, I remember staying at a monastery for a while 
and uh, was wonderful in so many respects in terms of the um, a lot of the meditation teaching and then the sort of the opportunity to practice kind of undisturbed and uh, in a lovely setting and um, all that. But one day I was struck, I was helping out in the kitchen and um, clearing some stuff and I just asked, well, where's the, oh, where do you keep the recycling? And the answer from the monk uh, came, oh, we don't recycle here. And I was, I was um, kind of shocked a little bit and uh, uh, he said, this is all just samsara. Um, all this is samsara, why bother with it? Um, and so that that uh, I, I that pained me. I felt it was really an inadequate um, point of view. Um, with so much wonderful uh, gifts from that that monastery and, and the teachers there, and uh, but set in a very tra- very traditional um, context of Theravada and Buddha, Buddha Dharma, where the aim is really to get off the wheel of rebirth to get out of samsara, samsara being phenomenal existence, the uh, experience of life and death and perception, experience, appearances. And the whole thrust, the whole movement of meditation practice um, is is to sever that link, to, to not be born again. And what one's leaving behind is just samsara, and with it, it's, it's kind of illusory. So, you can see if we if we um, tie that up with uh, what we were talking about in the other in the other talk, I think it was the talk on ontology, perhaps, and epistemology, and there were four four worldviews I laid out, four kind of ontological views, and one of them was exactly this: only the unfabricated is really real. All this fabrication is not real. It's samsara, and it's worthless, and we're trying to get out of it and not be. Uh, tied up uh, within. And so, the, the, again, the shadow side of that is that we end up not caring, or it's possible that there is an attitude of, of simply a lack of care about this so-called samsaric realm, about the world, about the earth, and about, in this case, something like recycling. So that would be an example of a kind of blindness coming out of shining the light in a certain direction. Now actually nowadays, that kind of light, in the context of Buddha Dharma, that kind of light is actually quite um, uh, relatively uncommon. Not that many people actually are practicing that way to really try and uh, thinking in terms of rebirth and ending rebirth and severing that link and the, the, the fabricated realm being in that sense illusory and to be to be uh, relinquished. But um, rare as that is now, and precious as it is for what it offers, it also has this uh, inevitable uh, lacuna in it, inevitable limit, um, and, and uh, I think fault, uh, in, in a way, uh, when it comes to uh, relating to the world. And then, you know, again, if we, we just briefly on this, we look at certain teachings, I don't know if they're more pop teachings or what, where uh, a practitioner has sort of got the idea that they're trying to move towards some kind of awakening that has no desire in it. 
that the, the eradication of desire is is where they're headed and what they're sort of aspiring to. And uh, I mean, we don't have to really linger here very long. But one can. What, what would a life like that even be like? What would it be like? How how would I relate to the difficulties in the world and to what the world needs without without some kind of desire there? Um, so that kind of gross oversimplification of what one thinks one's doing. How, uh, often leaves leaves a lot lacking, leaves a lot missing in terms of the larger life and the larger possibilities of ethical response. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, has a book called, um, uh, wrote a book called Enten Eller, it was called, and... Um, can find it, uh, and I'm mentioning this because, in a way, there's something he talks about there that bears a similarity again to certain, perhaps, kind of pop, uh, popular sort of notions of mindfulness, or pop, maybe even um, kind of pop non-dual teachings, Advaita teachings, not not really. Um, where I would say the fuller teachings there, but in this in this book that he wrote, um, Anton Eller uh, by Soren Kierkegaard, um, there's there's a, three characters, and there's character A, who um, recommends the what he calls the aesthetic way of life, and there's character B who recommends uh, what he calls the ethical way of life, and then there's a third character, uh, who's called Victor Eremita, and he um, sort of edits and um, writes notes on the uh, the papers, the sort of academic papers of both. And actually, Alistair McIntyre writes about this again, so I'll, I'll read a little short passage from him. He says, The choice between the ethical and the aesthetic... Okay, this is two, two kinds of styles of life, the ethical and the aesthetic. The choice between the ethical and the aesthetic is not the choice between good and evil. It is the choice whether or not to choose in terms of good and evil. Okay, Subtle difference, but really, really important. At the heart of the aesthetic way of life, as Kierkegaard characterizes it, is the attempt to lose the self in the immediacy of present experience. At the heart of the aesthetic way of life, as Kierkegaard characterizes it, is the attempt to lose the self in the the immediacy of present experience. The paradigm, doesn't that sound familiar a little bit, from certain kinds of teachings? The paradigm of aesthetic expression is the romantic lover who is immersed in his own passion. By contrast, the paradigm of the ethical is marriage. So the other way of life, the ethical way of life, so-called ethical way of life, the paradigm is marriage, a state of commitment and obligation through time in which the present is bound by the past and to the future. And so he says, each of the two ways of life is informed by different concepts, incomparable attitude, incompatible attitudes and rival premises. So, 
you know, sometimes when there's too much emphasis, for example, when there's a lot of emphasis on living in the present and um, dissolving the self in the, in the in in the moment and in the present experience and being one with what's happening, etc. Um, that sounds very reminiscent of what Kierkegaard's calling the aesthetic way of life, and in its kind of um, highlighting and um, emphasizing the present moment, it it uh, the shadow there is it misses the future, and what's necessary in terms of a commitment to the future. And where does that fit in uh, to uh, for our soul, for our spirit, for our practice, for our conceptual framework? So this, this is uh, you know one style of way of thinking about practice. Um, it's quite popular. Um, it's to me a truncation of, uh, of of larger bodies of teaching. But there's something about um, future commitment that is is really important and is missed then. So I want to come back in terms of uh, later in turn and talk about soul making and future commitment and how that relates to uh, what their connection is or what's the notion of future commitment in soul making. Um, if we look at uh, my own tradition, the, um, the insight meditation tradition, and Again, I want to say that it's changing um, very rapidly now, or it seems to me that things are changing quite quickly with regard, say, to something like climate change. Um, a little while ago, uh, some years ago, and I used to bring up the issue, and other people might mention it, and some some teacher, uh, teachers and some people would uh, involved in insight meditation would say. Well, that's a political issue. Climate change is a political issue, and we don't do politics. We try and be um, apolitical, non-sectarian, etc. So I think this is less common now, but it still bears um, mentioning and considering, again, if we're thinking about traditions and the life of traditions and what, uh, what goes on for us in terms of our relationship with ethics and, and morality and what goes on in our mind when our tradition and our commitment to a tradition um, meets the wider moral landscape. Because uh, one because one could uh, say um, to, to that response that used to be used to be relatively common, um, oh, well, was let's say the Holocaust um, a political issue or was it an ethical issue? I mean, the Holocaust was perpetrated essentially by Nazis who were democratically elected in 1933. Therefore, you could say, well, the whole thing is a political. It's just a matter of policy whether they want to exterminate Jews and gypsies and communists. And does that make it just a political issue, or is it an ethical issue? And then, you know, you can imagine this kind of conversation. Um, well, um, that's different uh, than something like climate change and, and what to do about climate change because that involved uh, intentional murder. The Holocaust in, in involved intentional murder. And uh, the concentration camps and extermination camps involved intentional murder. But actually, um, only some proportion of... Um, Camps, concentration camps, were deliberately uh, were deliberate extermination camps, where they actually put people to death um, deliberately. 
like in Auschwitz, for example, others, so for example, Bergen-Belsen, um, and ghettos where they, for example, imprisoned Jews, uh, th- there was just a kind of level of deprivation there and uh, the conditions um, there that happened to result in many deaths, many, many deaths, um, which the Nazis obviously didn't mind. Now that kind of, well, that's just how it is for these people, and we're not actually deliberately killing them, but we're, in a way, one setting up the conditions or not taking care of the conditions so that death becomes um, relatively inevitable. There's something like the attitude of many corporations to, to climate change. It's all a kind of, what's the term, collateral damage. Uh, so the notion of, you know, the, the sort of excuse or uh, point of view that says, oh, oh, something like climate change is a political issue, um, it doesn't really fly. It's one of the ways we can kind of squirm out of um, opening up to, facing up to uh, a difficult moral situation and what it asks of us. Or again, in some um, Buddhist circles, um, in some, and again in the insight meditation, used to come across this with regard to something like climate change. Um, oh, I don't have an opinion, um, and as if it was uh, having an opinion about climate change or about what should change or what to do or what I should do um, was all part of views and opinions which are to be transcended, let go of, etc., because they're, they're a fetter. Uh, but to say I don't have an opinion and to live a life where, I don't know, for example, one is flying an enormous amount and, and generating a huge amount of carbon emissions uh, way more than one person is sort of entitled to, um, and not speaking about it, that's actually expressing an opinion, even if I'm saying I'm shunning opinions. Again, what, what would it be, for example, in um, apartheid South Africa, or on the U.S. slave plantations, or um, next to gypsies and homosexuals and Jews being deported or gassed to death to say, I don't have an opinion. So there's something in the situation with certain issues like climate change or species loss, etc., that allows us to sort of distance, our, to use mechanisms, um, mental mechanisms that kind of distance ourselves from any sense of engagement or culpability or responsibility morally, that it's political, that it's a matter of opinion and views and opinions, etc., I said this is happening, thankfully, much less now. But these are the, I'm mentioning it partly because these are the kinds of things that can arise um, in, in tradition. So whenever there's a light, the light of a tradition, the light of a practice, a conceptual framework, it will bring with it uh, certain shadows in certain directions. And again, uh, sometimes in certain Buddhist circles, one... Um, I wonder about the dominant ethos. So remember, the word ethos is related 
very closely to the word ethics, the, the flavor, the character, or the personality, um, either of individuals or prominent individuals, or of the whole sangha, of the whole kind of flow of a tradition. And so, again, sometimes with all the the, the emphasis on non-harming and gentleness and kindness and softness, particularly nowadays in Western Buddhism, some Western Buddhism, particularly the insight meditation tradition, the emphasis on softness, sometimes one almost gets the sense that the, 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 the dominant ethos, in the dominant ethos, the most important thing uh, for a, a teacher or anyone else is not to offend anyone. That that actually almost trumps anything else. And if challenging students or challenging retreatants or, or, or people one's communicating with, if challenging them even might be deemed by them offensive, then it's important not to challenge people and one sort of doesn't say something or backs off. So this ethos of non-offending, which you can see in self, it has, it has you know, a certain moral value to it. Um, but when that moral value is trumped over the necessity or, or over the possibility of actually challenging uh, people's um, behavior or, or moral outlook or choices, getting them to think about it, it could be said something's gotten out of balance here from a certain perspective. So again, I remember, uh, uh, I think I shared this already, uh, Suvacho, colleague, Guy House teacher, um, teaching a retreat at Guy House and saying at some point to the yogis there, um, you know, some of you, or maybe even said a lot of you, I don't know, some of you will be uh, be much better off taking in a refugee uh, family into your home uh, rather than coming on retreat. Um, so it's quite a challenging thing to say, you know, um, and perhaps ruffled a few feathers, I don't know. But sometimes this, again, the ethos of gentleness or, non, or non-judgmentalism, which again, with all the pain of the pandemic, of the inner critic, becomes, they become so uh, emphasized in the teachings and in a way, importantly so, rightly so, helpfully so. But sometimes, uh, or, or the question is, can they be overdone so that they begin to eclipse other considerations? They trump other considerations considerations so that there's always always this kind of need to be uh, to be gentle be perceived as gentle so that for example um, protests in the street are not considered um, okay because one thinks well that's probably not gentle people are shouting or it's loud or it's against the law as the XR uh, protests were and uh, th- that that contravenes a sort of um, unwritten law about gentleness, although the dominant ethos about gentleness. What's in charge here? How conscious are we about it? And where are our, uh, h- how wide is the range of our consideration? Or non-judgmentalism, as I mentioned. Again, that can that can have. Uh, uh, a shadow side when it's overemphasized. So there is a difference between discernment, and we could say discernment on the one hand and judgment on the other, and it involves uh, whether you're judging people or actions or speech or behavior, for example. 
but I read a passage the other day, um, a couple of passages where the Buddha is really quite judgmental. There's enormous loving kindness, enormous generosity and compassion coming out of the Buddha, and at times he sounds or is extremely judgmental, harsh, critical. And the same with Jesus. Such mercy, such beautiful love coming out of that heart and that being and that life and that sacrifice and at times it's, it's fire coming out of the mouth the fire and, and the blade of judgment another uh, issue I think to, to look out for is just how easily and it's related to what I just said but how easily uh, within a tradition or in a sangha or community, um, there can be a kind of coalescence, a streamlining into uh, a set array, a certain range of common behaviour and common views. Just one is in the tradition, and so one goes along with that, even if one is not quite conscious of going along with it. One a little bit gets swept up in the stream of that tradition and contained within the family uh, affiliation and loyalty of the community. This may not be conscious at all. And so one comes to act in certain ways or have certain views, or rather certain ways of acting become the norm in that tradition and just are unquestioned. It's just what people do. Certain choices, certain um, ways of doing things and behaviours, etc., and views. And in that, there can be a loss of the individual's autonomy, making their own decisions about behavior and about views. So that certain certain behaviors and certain views can become uh, very normalized. Very normalized. So and I've talked in the past, I know, and, uh, and written about, uh, for example, how normal it, it is and again, I hope this is beginning to change, the signs that it might be, but um, how normal it is in the insight meditation tradition to, um, to really do lots of flying. Um, so this is just an example of a kind of, kind of behaviour that can get very normalised. Um, because it's what everyone around me is doing, and we kind of think that we're good people because we're Buddhists and we're interested in less suffering and we're spiritual people, etc., um, so the issue is not really about flying, and I've talked about that enough. So I, let's say the issue is really about, um, for example, uh, how am I relating to my carbon emissions? And one way of thinking about, about climate ethics is, is to kind of calculate, and people have done this, calculate how much carbon emissions uh, what, uh, would be, would, even if we shared them equally, how, uh, in order not to, say, um, heat the planet over, let's say, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, then, then you work backwards from that, okay? This is what we need, how we need to limit the carbon, and that works out as so many, uh, such and such a quota, uh, tons of carbon emissions per person per year, let's say. And that will be one way of thinking about it. And, and in a way, that's a very reasonable way of thinking about it. I mean, it leaves aside uh, climate justice and who owes what what and, and from the past, etc. But just as a start, that's one way of thinking about it. So the issue really here is, um, when does it become, how and when 
And why does it become normal for so many of us to um, blatantly and unthinkably take more than our, use up more than our fair share of carbon? And, and so put into the atmosphere and add to the global warming and, and the misery uh, that, that will come from that um, disproportionately. What's going on there? Um, and so, as I said, in certain traditions, I mean, in wider society, it's, it's just uh, the inside meditation tradition is just a reflection of the wider society where it's just very normal for people to fly loads and loads and not think about this potential way of, of uh, contemplating climate ethics. Actually, it's only right that I have an equal share to everyone else. And what do I think I'm doing when I, when I just uh, extravagantly um, put in consume much more carbon, put into the atmosphere much more carbon. So again, what gets normalized in the wider society? Absolutely, certainly. And just recently, Extinction Rebellion was planning a uh, disruption of um, Heathrow Airport in protest to the planned building of a third runway. And it was pulled, it was uh, retracted, the, the plan for this uh, disruption. And I don't know the ins and outs, but I wonder whether it was just because the public outcry would have been huge, because it's so normal to think, I am entitled to fly on holiday. I'm entitled to fly somewhere um, for some pleasure, and maybe several times a year. And if that doesn't happen, it's uh, it's worse than any... Uh, I don't actually think this, but uh, it's an unthinkable... An unthinkable um, state of affairs. So something gets normalized in the larger culture and also in the insight meditation culture, for example, I'm sure it happens in lots of other cultures, certainly corporate cultures and all kinds of things, but um, something's getting normalized just because it's normal in, in this case, the subculture, and, that, and it's normal in the subculture partly because it's normal in the wider culture, partly. So again, what's the, re- what's the responsibility of a tradition to... Um, really wrestle with, I mean really wrestle, really question the, um, the dominant values in the wider culture when it's necessary to do so. You can pay a very easy lip service to anti-consumerism, consumerism, oh that's greed, that's one of the kilesas, etc. But to, to really do that. So if we, if we think then about you know, what's a fair share of carbon dioxide as one way of, or a certain way of thinking about climate ethics... Um, and actually, so some of you will have heard of uh, Immanuel Kant's uh, categorical imperative. So it's a kind of rational formula that he came up with for uh, an equalitarian ethics. In other words, very much in line with what I'm just saying. About. So uh, we have to regard everyone equally. Everyone gets equal respect and equal share, so to speak. Um, but this categorical imperative is a way of thinking about one's action and kind of testing, testing it um, by the standards of this uh, rational idea, which says that one ought so to act as to be able to will that everyone should act so. So what that means is, if I'm, let's say I want to use up um, uh, three or four times my fair share of carbon for, for the year, um, can I really wish, can I really will that everyone does so? 
because if I know that if everyone if everyone uses three or four times, then we're you know the whole ship sinks. So if I if I use that uh, measure, that rational measure, Kant's categorical imperative, it puts certain constraints on the choices I I have to make, or I have to then okay, it's, maybe I do use three times the the uh, my carbon share or whatever this year or whatever. Um, somehow I have to justify that, or I have to offset it, and I don't just mean planting trees somewhere. I have to. Um, consider whether there are cases where that's in the larger scope of taking care of everyone equally, this equalitarian ethics, that in the larger consideration of that, that it actually is justified. It does make sense. So how do I decide? If, if for example, I really feel that my... Uh, I mean, let's take flying, just because I can't think of anything else right now, but... Um, that my flying over there, uh, back and forth, wherever it is, or many flights a year, if I, if, if I really think that there's so much good coming out of that, it's so necessary, then maybe the balance of that good outweighs the harm of putting all that carbon into the atmosphere. But how do I decide? It's not that easy. One of the things I think I was... Um, when I used to talk about this uh, a bit and uh, write about it, what what it's hard to make prescriptions here, but at least I think what I what I wanted to, to feel and to see was that there was a wrestling with these issues, that they weren't just easy because as I said, when when it when it gets normalised, when for example flying a lot to go on retreat to teach a retreat to go and visit a, a certain. Buddhist tourist site or whatever, uh, that that last possibility gets much easier. If I'm flying a lot anyway to teach retreats and um, whatever it is, and I'm not really thinking about it too much, I'm not really wrestling with it, then that um, other flight to go on holiday or to, to uh, do something, even if it looks vaguely Buddhist... Um, it, it just—it's part of just what gets swept up in no, in the in the normality. It's just normalized. So, can you know w- what I was hoping for? I think was a kind of more 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 sense of of people wrestling with these choices, which I, I really hear is beginning to happen nowadays, and that's um, I'm thankful for that. So one again. Two poles. One pole would just be the inner critic. Oh, people will judge me um, uh, if if I fly a lot or whatever. And the other pole um, is just just going ahead because it's normalised. I'm not afraid of judgment because the the normal uh, the normality in my tradition or my culture is it not to be um, judged. So I just do it. Can there be a middle way where there's actually a wrestling with it? questioning, how do I decide? If I'm using Kant's categorical imperative, I'm not suggesting that's the only way of doing things. How do I actually weigh up the relative um, amounts of suffering uh, or, or uh, the, the relative help whether I fly or I don't fly? I don't, don't take those emissions or I do fly and help whatever that situation is. Um, and again, swept up, 
caught up in the sort of um, homogeneity and the, the stream of a tradition and its way of thinking and its sort of accepted behaviours, what would it be to, um, to actually be more independent and wrestle more independently? Or together, the Sangha together, or, or people within the Sangha actually really wrestling with these questions. So there's something for me about the wrestling which shows an aliveness ethically. It shows I'm willing to not be peaceful. I'm willing to put up with the agitation of this the, the, and, and the lack of simplicity of it. Some of these choices are really not simple. So there's something about, about um, assenting to and opening to and putting up with and uh, confronting and entering into um, the difficulty, the wrestling. It's not peaceful, it's not simple, it doesn't fit those kind of, um, uh, that shrunken range of Buddhist archetypes of peacefulness and simplicity. So you can imagine, if that became if that became that way of thinking from, for example, uh, thinking about what, what, uh, how do we divide up a fair share of climate emissions per person, per year, or whatever, for the whole of humanity, as one way, and connect that with Kant's categorical imperative. Then, you know, you can imagine oh, saying to someone there, just, oh, I'm going off here or there, I'm going for a holiday, I'm going um, whatever it is. And say, really? Wow. Well, um, uh, you can imagine having some kind of document or, 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 or um, you need to kind of justify it some way. The person asking, where's your, where's your leaf sage? What's a leaf sage? L-E-E-F-S-A-G. Where's your um, lethal emissions in excess of your fair share allowance justification? Leaf sage. And actually, that becomes the normal. That you don't you don't just do something like that, um, or your heath said your harmful emissions in excess of your fair share allowance justification. That that actually becomes the normal way of thinking about it. So, like, whoa, you're doing what? Um, so a lot of this just just is a matter of just what's what's normal. Um, because if we talk about now, if we talk about carbon and climate, and uh, and also species loss, these these um, related issues, because the threads of cause and effect are so much more complex, it's hard to actually. It's not like um, stabbing someone to death, where it's very clear uh, what, what's the cause, what's the effect, who's the culprit, etc. With something like climate change. Um, and carbon emissions in, in a you know seven plus billion people uh, plus government policy and all that it's actually quite hard to trace the threads of cause and effect but in a way again we can very easily let that complexity and the difficulty of tracing it very clearly um, obfuscate and eclipse uh, our sense of moral responsibility so it's not too far from there. I don't mind killing and stealing as long as no one finds out. 
no one's going to find out because the thread of cause and effect is um, is too complex. So these these are hard hard issues, I think hard hard to think through, hard to kind of face up to. I did hear about um, several. That's what I alluded to earlier just now, but I did hear about several. Um, Sort of, I don't know what to call them, Buddhist sightseeing trips, really. I mean, they get billed as pilgrimages, but um, so flying to Bhutan or India or whatever to go to some uh, Buddhist temples and this and that. Um, and so again, what if we, what if we took, uh, for example, Kant's categorical imperative or this this idea of uh, a fair share of uh, carbon emissions. And so how would I justify that? What would I say on my, what did I call it, leaf search form? What would I say to that family in Bangladesh who have almost no food because of floods and no house? Or or to those dying of, I don't know, dengue fever that has expanded its territory with climate change and, and, and global warming? Or those whose livelihoods, health and Homes have been destroyed because of years of drought. Already, the, uh, people are in that situation. Human beings are in that situation, and and in the future, because of these excess emissions. What would, what would I say? Actually, to to really actually contemplate that conversation. Imagine yourself. Imagine myself there with them, or here with them. If you if you make it simpler, uh, sometimes it's easier to see. Imagine you're on a ship. I'm on a ship with I don't know, ten people or a hundred people even, and I have to. Uh, I want to explain to them why I'm allowed to eat more food than them, to shit on the deck, and they're not allowed. Um, and uh, maybe I'm a Dharma teacher, and I'm explaining, and I give them a Dharma talk. That would be an interesting thing my Dharma talk to these 10 or 100 people justifying why I deserve that special house. Because I do very special work, you know. Sometimes we have to, kind of, because of the complexity of the situation, actually make it a bit smaller and say, hold on, what actually is the difference? It's a difference of scale. But to be on that situation in the boat, in the middle of the ocean, with nothing else around, which is the situation of our planet, and then decide that I can emit more, not care about my waste... Um, use up more resources, etc. What, what am I really going to say to them? How am I going to justify that? So again, what's normal? It, imagine, again, if we take a, a different moral issue, imagine, so I might slip out easily, so, oh yeah, I'm off to um, wherever it is to see some Buddhist temples or whatever, you know, and I'm, I'm going to fly there and, and then I'm going to fly here and wh- whatever it is. What if I just mention to someone, oh yeah, um, yeah, well my slaves are going to help me out with someone and just people be like, you're, you're what, you're slaves? It's just, it has become not normal. So there's, you know, not to um, uh, underestimate the power um, of just what, what becomes normalized through, um, through the body and the flow and the range of a tradition or a subculture or, or wider culture.
if I, you know, everyone, I think, would object to slaves, and very few people would raise their voice around, uh, say, using up more, more carbon, or flying a lot. I mean, that's partly being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, if we're just talking now, before we even get onto the soul-making possibilities, just in terms of more mainstream meditative possibilities, um, it might be interesting to, um, in stepping up and opening out to to the, 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 the whole range and difficulty and depth and complexity of the moral challenge here, to actually um, engage in certain uh, meditative exercises, for example, uh, to really let these issues go deeper. Because I think what can happen is that they just they don't really register in the heart and the soul and and the being. And there's a way they can kind of stay at arm's length, and so we're not really um, dealing with them. So, for example, as I was a bit tongue in cheek before, but I mean, but what about imagining a family in? Bangladesh or Jakarta or in sub-Saharan Africa, who um, find out that there, uh, that the floods there or the drought and the the threat from these floods or drought or whatever to 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 their lives um, are made worse and more probable uh, through climate change, so that their house and fields and whatever has become um, unworkable, uninhabitable, um, they become um, a refugee or die or their relatives or family die, they're cast into poverty, into abject poverty, very little hope of getting out of that. And they and they learn somehow that, oh, this is related to something called climate change or whatever, and there's the education there. And they also learn that climate change is caused by... Um, CO2 emissions mostly um, and most of the CO2 emissions come from rich people um, most of whom most of whom rich people know about climate change and its connection with CO2 emissions and these people in this family and wherever it is Bangladesh or Jakarta or wherever or Africa somewhere they hear about that and um and they and they also hear that actually these people don't need to fly. These rich people don't need to fly. But they like to go on holiday or whatever it is. And because it's pleasant experience. So again, what would I actually say to them to, to justify my um choice to fly on holiday or to eat red meat or to drive uh an SUV or whatever it is? or even just to choose um, the slightly cheaper energy company. Or even as a Dharma teacher, if I fly to teach a lot. Again, just with the um, easy assumption that because I'm a Dharma teacher, I must be... um, my flight and my life and my uh, efforts must be decreasing suffering. Or would it be to actually have that imaginary conversation in meditation um, and, and really be with the whole emotional range of it and the sensitive, with the sensitivity to all that? It might involve a little bit of kind of squirming and, um, and difficult feelings. 
So within that also to be, uh, to become and to cultivate this kind of um, possibility of a real sensitivity to to that to the discomfort, just when things feel out of alignment, but also when they feel in alignment and when there's a sense of integrity. So these again, it will be reflected in the heart and the energy body. They actually feel different. Uh, but that might be um, an interesting, an interesting practice to actually use the imagination. It's not imaginal, but the imagination in meditation. Have put yourself in relationship with those kinds of human beings, whom we don't in the in the rich West we don't often come into into direct contact with, and actually have that Im- imaginary conversation with all the availability of the heart and the energy body, taking the time, listening to the mind, watching what the mind does, watching what's happening in the body, feeling it. And as I said, developing sensitivity in that, to where things are uh, lack integrity in ourselves, where there's this kind of squeam, squirming, and where, and where they are in integrity and in alignment, and the whole uh, range of emotion there. Because part of what these, uh, part of what ethical practice asks of us, and it's, and even more so nowadays with all this complexity and the globalization, and the situation, can uh, okay, we talk about climate change and species loss, environmental degradation, and destruction? Part of it will actually ask us for not just a sensitivity in all these kinds of ways. Sensitivity empathically, sensitivity to ethics and morals, which is something I'll come back to. But also, uh, it asks us for a great capacity emotionally. Actually, can I tolerate the grief here? Can I tolerate the remorse? Can I be with that? Again, let it be in a crucible so that something redemptive, helpful, um, uh, onward-leading, ennobling comes out of it. It's asking, it's asking quite a lot. But that might be an interesting exercise. And sometimes, again, again, we're just talking about Buddha Dharma now, but sometimes what can happen is certain priceless elements within a tradition or a teaching can actually then uh, we can hide behind them in in, in certain ways. Um, so, for example, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, um, it can become a kind of, um, uh, at times, it becomes somewhat something of a delusional um, trope or delusional rhetoric. So, for example, I'm off on a sightseeing trip to wherever it is, uh, Tibet or Nepal or Bhutan or whatever. And it's kind of Buddhist. But um, I, as a Buddhist practitioner, I I feel myself or I want to think of myself as having this commitment to decreasing suffering, my own and the world's. And yet I know, or I should know, that um, uh, making that choice, what's essentially an unnecessary trip, um, will we'll increase suffering. How do I square my devotion to and commitment to um, the pa- 
paradigm of the Four Noble Truths and, and decreasing suffering. How do I square that with the suffering that, although difficult to trace, will result from my choosing to go on that particular trip and fly? You know, what's interesting about that kind of thing is um, one goes perhaps on these, on these, um, yes, Buddhist, I don't know what to call them, but sometimes they get called pilgrimages, but um, Buddhist sightseeing trip or pilgrimage or whatever, um, and you can you can sense from the soul making perspective what's wrapped up in there is something is inchoate as as an image. It's sort of it's potentially an image. So, for example, Ladakh or Bhutan or, or Nepal or Tibet. There's the whole sense, or um, uh, almost like not quite imaginal, but there's the image of Tibetan. History, Tibetan Buddha Dharma history, and all the color and the richness of that, and the beauty of that, and that's um, a potential, potentially imaginal image in the psyche. But if I don't have a way of relating to it, where it actually becomes authentically imaginal, then the only way I can relate to it is is as something concretized and literalized. And I need to go there without the soul making paradigm, without an actual imaginal practice, understanding how. Uh, there doesn't need to be the literalization. Um, any duty I have to that image may not need to be literalized. Without that soul-making paradigm, it, 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 this this um, incipient eros for this um, fantasy or, or non-imaginal image of Tibetan Buddhist history or whatever has to be concretized. If if one is more has practice more with the imaginal and the soul-making paradigm is I actually don't need to go there. I'm not going to get actual teachings there. It's very unlikely I'm going to get actual teachings there that I wouldn't otherwise get if I stayed here and got on the internet or in a book or from a teacher here. I'm not going to get actual teachings there that would um, make a real difference uh, to me or my teaching. I mean, I I might, but it's pretty rare these days. So, but with with the imaginal practice, actually possible. Oh, I can, I can enter into an erotic imaginal relationship with that whole region, with that whole lineage, with that whole beauty there. And it's just as alive and fecund in my soul and in my psyche, just as beautiful and rich and onward leading and opening just as soul-making, maybe more, than if I went there and actually had, and actually had, you know, concretized the whole thing. What's a fixated image and what's an imaginal image? So without, without the imaginal sensibility, without um, a sense of what it means for something to be imaginal and how to practice without and the taste for it, things get concretized. And the concretization has a cost to others, also to myself. So, as I said, there's possibilities here, and it's not it's really not to say one tradition or practice is better than another, but there's possibil- possibilities to kind of expand some of these um, 
some of the ways we relate or, or fail to kind of relate ethically, um, some of the ways our ethical consideration and behavior fall short, our ethical vision and sensibility fall short, it's possible to expand from different perspectives. And one of them is the soul-making paradigm as we've, as we've taught it so far with, with image and all that. So, if we think about, um, just as an illustration of that, if we think about um, what traditional Buddha Dharma, and again, I'm mostly thinking of insight meditation Dharma, but it probably applies to other traditions, other sub-traditions, um, what the typical uh, limits on ethics, and remember, on ethos there, on the character or flavor of um, practitioners of beings of how the whole thing gets shaped and, and limited the whole um, tenor of that trajectory um, it, with regard to let's say activism and the possibilities of activism um, and let's say while we're on the subject activism with regard to climate or species loss um, mass species extinction etc so if, if we just analyze it for for a few moments, um, in let's say traditional insight meditation or Buddha Dharma, there's there. We might say there's certain limits on the ethics um, and on the ethos because those two go together. And with regard and on uh, so therefore on the possibility of activism, because it's um, uh, because there's limited possibility for for the the difference for sense for the sense of different aspects of, of our existence. And oftentimes they're kind of unconscious. So for example, with regard to the self, there's this um, inherited uh, archetype of um, the peaceful, uh, detached um, uh, Buddha, or this is what an awakening person, this is the flavor, the ethos of their being. They're peaceful, they're simple, they're detached, they don't get upset, they don't shout on the street, they don't break the law, they don't, etc. So, in terms of the scope of the ethos and therefore the ethics um, of, of the self and how it might uh, be supported or not to engage in, let's say, activism, and maybe even civil disobedience, um, there's a limit there because of the ethos, which isn't isn't hardly recognized as uh, as something that's handed to us and makes an imprint on us. It's not talked about as an image. It's not talked about as an archetype. And and because it's not talked about and recognized as such, it has more insidious uh, clout. So in terms of the self, there would be one kind of limitation there. In terms of um, other, so we can think about self, other, world, um, eros, and time. So those five categories. So self is limited in the way that I've just explained. Um, with regard to others and other human beings, um, again, there is maybe a tendency to not, um, not want to create a duality. Uh, certainly through judgmentalism, not not there's no place for an image of war, of battle. Um, there's no um, we can't have kind of opponents. There's not there's not scope in it in terms of what we're given in terms of image and thinking. That's 
got to be on its way to hatred, the defilement of hatred, is the usual assumption. It's rarefied. But can there be the theatre of war? Um, the the theatre, the image, I mean, of war. The image of opponents, the image of battle. It's not rarefied. But it can, in the theatre of things, it can have that power without it being rarefied into the defilement of hatred. You know, Bill McGibbon, the founder of 350 and a long-term um, environmental activist, and actually I think he wrote the first ever book on climate change. Um, and at one point, a few years ago, he actually came out and said, they are the enemy. Who? These big, big oil corporations, these big fossil fuel corporations. And actually starting to talk in those terms. Now, yes, we can rarefy that and get into all kinds of uh, problems and defilement, but we can also use that as an image. And the self can be cast as a warrior, in, for example, in relation, in the theatre theatrically cast, imaginally cast, as a warrior in relation to this enemy. So there's a limitation on self, limitation on other, on the sense of self and the sense of other. The world too, self-other world. The world um, tends to be, uh, and I would say if we just speak about insight meditation dharma, tends to just receive the same view of the world as as the dominant view in the culture. It's, it's a flat world, so to speak. It's not dimensional. It uh, one subscribes kind of to the scientific materialist view, um, maybe with a few magical notions um, bound in, in there or floating around. Um, the world itself is in many respects just, it may be beautiful, but it's a kind of irrelevant and purposeless backdrop for the uh, the project of my own liberation, my practice. And again, some of this is not conscious, but because it's the dominant Weltanschauung, uh, the dominant worldview in the culture, it seeps into the subculture and it just becomes part of it, unless it's actually uh, questioned, unearthed, um, reworked, opened up, considered differently. Self, other world, eros, my passion, my love, my tears. So again, traditional Buddhism, either they're mine, and that would be an unskillful way of looking at them, or they're not mine, they're anatta, and that would be a skillful way of looking at them. There's no other option, it's just either mine or not mine. My rage, my eros, my love, my grief. Or in terms of time, self, other world, eros, time. I'm putting those five together because they kind of go as a as a, a, a sort of bundle uh, of fabrication. They tend to get fabricated together, self and other and world and time and uh, some kind of desire. And so how they get fabricated uh, matters a great deal as we've touched on in these talks and beforehand. And they tend to get fabricated together as a kind of bundle, not always exactly in the same moment, but they're related. So with the fifth one, with time, again, um, usual in the insight meditation tradition would be we only have um, 
we only have the notion of impermanence, that things are impermanent, that's, that's the way we relate to time, or that we can take, of course, we can take practical measures for the future, and those practical measures may either succeed or fail. What's missing there? It's impermanence and uh, working practically for the future. And that future, uh, whatever projects we have for the future, whatever hopes may either succeed or fail. What's missing there? There's no eternality. There's no sense of the eternal in that. Let's, let's linger on, on some of these a little while. Um, so in terms of the self, and also, the, if you like, the attributes or the range of, of self-sense and self-expression, um, again, oftentimes what's missing, said so the warrior is missing, but also the kind of place for wrath. We have it in the Tibetan deities, at least you have the image of it, the wrathful deities. Um, but it's still... Uh, somewhat problematic how that is supposed to translate into one's life. But is there a place for wrath? For righteous indignation, for moral indignation? Does that have a place in our moral life? Is there a need for that? Is there a maturity in allowing that place? Of course it goes with shadow. Of course it goes with potential dangers and misuse and delusion. But is there a place with that? So oftentimes, again, in the usual range of what we receive as the ethos and therefore the ethics of, um, of Buddha Dharma, let's say, that has no place. And so Nikolai Hartmann is a philosopher. I've mentioned him before in other talks, and I'm going to come back to him um, and uh, talk quite a bit, I think, about some of his work. Um, but he pointed out, um, he's, talk, he's sort of surveying um, classical ethics uh, with Aristotle and Plato and things like that. And he talks about um, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics, which is a, a book Aristotle wrote about ethics. And it names the virtue of, uh, I think it's praotis, I don't know if that's how you say it, praotis, um, it seems to mean, um, uh, at first sight, it seems to mean something like gentleness. So that's a, a moral value, a moral virtue. Um, but it seems to mean uh, actually something, when he looks into it closely, it seems to mean equable temper, more, more almost than gentle, gentleness. So what it really means is something between violent temper on the one hand, and on the other hand, an incapacity to feel righteous indignation. So, with regard to mildness of temper, uh, with regard to this priorities, uh, a special merit lies in the view that not only easy excitability to anger, but also complete incapacity to feel wrath is a moral defect. You understand? So, this is Nikolai Hartmann writing about Aristotle's ethics. Um, uh, with uh, A special merit lies in the view that not only easy excitability to anger, so that's the one we'd always, we'd very easily uh, recognize as uh, what he calls a moral defect, not only easy excitability to anger, but also complete incapacity to feel wrath is a moral defect. 
The presupposition of this view is that anger in itself is something valuable. Therefore, indirectly, that in general there is moral value in emotion. It is evident that here a far deeper appreciation of emotion is expressed than we find elsewhere among the ancients. He's talking about the Stoics and and people like that. And of course we can translate that to our uh, contemporary age and just in terms of, let's say, just Buddha Dharma, the subculture of Buddha Dharma. And how do we, even within insight meditation tradition, you see quite a range in the sort of emphasis of different teachings within the insight meditation tradition on the importance of emotion and appreciation of emotion. And what's the range of uh, importance? What's the range of emotion to which importance and place is given? But here, this incapacity to feel wrath is a moral defect. As much as uh, being too too quick to, to temper and to anger. So again, we're talking about what can we, where where do things get limited, just by virtue of being in tradition in a kind of um, in in the in the run of uh, accepted ways, accepted modes of thinking and regarding. about time, so I mentioned time as one of the um, elements there, self, other world, eros, and time, in terms of this bundle that tend to get fabricated together in both uh, conventional perception and in imaginal perception. And so altogether, they go, they go together as a sort of um, aspects of, of fabrication. <coughs> and um, Sometimes when I'm talking to people who are um, trying to work towards solutions for, uh, with regard to climate change or they're activists, etc. Um, and sometimes they use the word story. We need a new story. We need a new narrative. And um, it can sound like, oh, we're talking about the same thing when we talk about image or fantasy. It's just story and narrative are, are similar words um, or just interchangeable words for that. But when I listen to them, it's clear that we're actually talking about different things. So yes, I, I think we do need a plan or plans about what we're going to do about climate change and, and halting species loss and, and that kind of thing. We need concrete plans and uh, tools to implement those plans and legislation and all that. But some of these activists and people who are concerned uh, with, with a lot of care and heart, and uh, it's not, again, it's not to say this is wrong, it's just to add to it, um, talk about story and narrative and the need for um, a, a wider story and narrative in regard to climate and uh, how humanity is doing uh, with all that, and particularly how it will face the um, likely mayhem and catastrophes that many people, at least that many people consider likely in the face of climate and environmental breakdown. So, um, the story and narrative as it's used by some some of these activists, some of whom are colleagues, um, it may mean it, uh, because because it's a story, it brings a kind of binding to the future. So it actually connects with that passage that we read from Kierkegaard 
about not the aesthetic way of life, but the ethical way of life. The marriage as the paradigm of that, and a marriage being a commitment uh, in time to the future. And uh, through the past and into the future. So this, this idea of a new story, a new narrative, or new stories and new narratives, they seem to bring, and they may bring this binding to the future, but of course what if that future does, does not turn out at all as the story hopes or plans? You can have a story for how we're going to build sort of resilience um, or human community and cohesion, social cohesion, when there's food scarcity or water uh, scarcity or, uh, you know, d- disease is rampant, etc., and social breakdown. Um, but what if that future does not turn out at all as the story hopes? Um, an image, in contrast, in the way we're using an imaginal image, is um, because it's eternal and timeless, as we've talked about, as one of the elements of the imaginal, it seems not to imply a future binding. It's just eternal. So it seems, not. It seems, um, if it's not quite the aesthetic way of life, it's neither the ethical way of life, because, as Kierkegaard was talking about, because it doesn't have this binding to the future. So it seems that because of the eternality element, the timelessness element, but actually it does. It has a bond with and commitment to, um, uh, for example, an image in in relation to as an image of oneself as uh, as a, an activist or a, a warrior um, for the for the earth or warrior for species or or, or whatever it is. That image. Um, needs to be eternal in partly because in being eternal it doesn't then depend on what happens whatever happens that soldier will fight there's a kind of um, endlessness to to the problems we face and to what we need to uh, address and what we need to combat actually so in those images I used to share years ago are one of my re- recurrent images of this solitary soldier. One of the things that's interesting is he's always fighting. And there's a kind of endlessness um, to him. He rests and then he get up, gets up to fight. And then he rests and he gets up to fight. And there's not an end to that. Um, so there's this... There is actually a future bond. There's, a, as I said, a bond with a commitment to... Um, however that pans, however that plays out, however that's refracted into the life, commitment to acting, speaking, expressing, fighting, seeding, giving birth, um, in whatever ways uh, are helpful and necessary, a part of that whole duty of the image, ongoingly, no matter what, it doesn't depend on achieving a specific outcome. So certain um, movements of activism, they will go on forever. There won't be an end to them. The revolution, if you use that word, goes on forever. There's always, there's always something. And, and in a way, that's part, it's wrapped up in, in a more imaginal way of sensing the whole thing. And there's, of course, the duty there. 
and the infinite mirroring and echoing as elements of the imaginal. So that image, in our sense, imaginal image is slightly different than story and narrative. And it does bring, if one has an image of oneself in that way, uh, for example, as an activist, as a warrior, or whatever, it may be a, a midwife, it may be uh, healing the planet, whatever the image is, it doesn't actually stop. Um, both the image in itself and also the reality of the situation is not going to stop. Um, but there's duty coming through that refracted from the image into one's life, into one's action, speech, etc., So if you go back to Kierkegaard and his distinction between the aesthetic way of life that uh, has no commitment to the future and just wants to kind of lose the self in the, in the present moment and merge with the present moment, no self, just this moment, um, uh, compared with this what we call ethical way of life and this sort of um, almost like sober commitment to the future, um, what's missing in that distinction is the psychological awareness of what we might call soulfulness. Um, that each of those uh, may have that, what he calls the aesthetic and the ethical, may come in, so that the distinction is actually much more complicated. But in relation, the main point here is in relation to time and the future, the, um, the allowing of more imaginal dimensions, more imaginal filling out of the ethos and of the possibilities and the ethical sensibility and the sense of self, other, world, um, etc. With, re- uh, with relation to time, then we get this whole other dimension of eternality which binds us to the future in a more kind of um, endless way. And is not um, so tied to a certain outcome. So there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a kind of, there's an extra duty there to a certain extent, but there's also a liberation there because we're not so tied to achieving this or that specific outcome. Yes, we want that. Yes, we hope for that. But on the imaginal level at least, it's, it's just, it's endless. It's eternal. And there's a duty there and that duty binds. It's like the duty of marriage, the, the bond, the commitment to that uh, endless uh, refraction in time of the life of that image, of the duty of that image. Um, Later, as I said, I mentioned very briefly, want to come back and talk about values and virtues and um, as a different way of talking both about ethics but also about soul-making. And um, uh, just, I will say hopefully much more about that later, but just to seed something now and and to tie up with what we just said. If we think about virtues um, uh, and human virtues um, and development of those virtues being part of the kind of one possible way of thinking about the kind of moral education or moral kind of development that I was talking about. There doesn't seem to be many programs um, for personal development beyond 18, let alone moral development. 
And that's one way of thinking about it, is actually thinking about the virtues. We'll come back and talk about this. And that's open-ended then. Unlike um, uh, the story or the narrative, we need a new story, a new narrative, that seems to, um, sometimes when I hear these uh, friends and colleagues and other people, activists or people talking, it seems to involve a trajectory in time that will arrive at a certain place that ends in time, the story or this narrative that one uh, tries to uh, introduce into society in the hope that there will be a collective buying into this story and narrative and it will steer us all in a better direction. If we regard the sort of program of development uh, or the invitation of the development of human virtues, uh, of our moral virtues as part of the possible development we can have as human beings and what we can cultivate, then that can actually be open-ended. It's never perfected. It's never ever finished. So there's a similarity there in terms of the open-endedness that go with uh, that goes with imaginal ways of uh, sensing one's relationship to the whole ethical issues and also with... Um, thinking about it in terms of virtues. We'll come back to virtues later. And if we just say on like what we know so far about the soul-making paradigm, and um, I probably don't need to say this, but I'll mention it anyway, just in case someone does uh, raise it as a question. Uh, you know, the idea of theatre... Um, or the idea of emptiness of reality and the imaginal middle way and all that. Um, it's, you know, bears no similarity at all with what, what's, you know, uh, recently been coined as post-truth politics and uh, fake news and Donald Trump and others spinning, doesn't start with him, of course, but um, spinning, spinning fake news or turning stories on their heads, etc., promulgating all that so there's nothing uh, there's a very basic difference between if if we say everything is empty or um, there's no ultimate truth or reality it doesn't invite that kind of um, what to call it misdemeanor of post-truth politics and fake news it doesn't as we said emptiness doesn't mean all things are um, ontologically the same. Everything's kind of untrue, so therefore anything goes. Again, how, sh- how should we um, put our finger on what's different here? Well, one way is uh, looking at what's the intention. What determines the choice of, say, speech or action or view if there's no ultimate truth? In so-called post-truth politics, what's determining um, why a certain politician says this thing or presents a certain view which is clearly not the case and convinces people that it is, whatever. What's determining it? Well, it's things like ego and greed and fear. And and the the ego there, the self, is reified. So in this um, kind of like, it's all... Truth has lost its place. Actually, there's a reification of the self, and certain objects 
get reified for the purposes of greed or in relationship to greed. I mean, and also, um, I don't know, some art that's influenced by postmodernism. I'm now thinking of art that's, um, I don't know what to say, at its worst. Um, uh, one is, you know, again, what's 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 choosing, so what's determining the choice um, of putting this out or putting that out or presenting this or that. And again, sometimes it can be that it's ego. The artist wants to be famous, wants to make money, wants to appear clever. And there's a reification of nihilism there, of meaninglessness. In soul-making, uh, rather, what determines our choice of um, what we put out there, of speech, of action, of view, if it's not some ultimate truth... Um, well, it's it's the sense of soul-making and all that that entails, including the fullness of intention, including beauty, including love, including reverence. So all that is there. So if anyone gets nervous with this notions of emptiness and the imaginal middle way and the theatre-like quality and possibility of using image, but image isn't real, it's very clear where the intention is coming from, what determines choices. And if we touch on the Four Noble Truths, again, for the sake of asking, are there ways which certain central paradigms and kind of normalized paradigms can actually unwittingly become limiting for our relationship with ethics and with moral questions? One area I think is quite enlightening to consider in this regard is, is say, litter. Uh, it strikes me as quite a good example of something which isn't obviously related as an issue to the Four Noble Truths, for the most part. So, caring about removing litter, it can't, you can't really, um, I mean, in some instances you can, but you can't really say um, that that's... Uh, going to lead to less suffering. It can't really be looked at convincingly um, in terms of the Four Noble Truths paradigm. And because the Four Noble Truths is so central and so sort of um, determinative of uh, the direction and therefore the, the gaze and the outlook and therefore the moral outlook and gaze and action or, or, or non-action um, within Buddha Dharma, um, there may be limitations coming from that. Um, whereas if, if for instance, when, with, with the soul-making paradigm, we're actually including um, other ways of looking um, where the sense of soul-making, the sense of sacredness and beauty are given, uh, are given weight, as much sometimes as a reduction in suffering. So that something like litter becomes part of a larger, let's call it a moral issue. And what we do about litter. In itself, litter is, you could say, yeah, and some, in some instances, of course, it's plastic in the oceans and for the marine life, etc. And that's becoming, uh, just recently, in the, um, in the last year or two, it's becoming really um, broadcast as a problem and more people are cottoning onto that. But there's still a difference in the reason for concern 
this turtle or, or whatever it is or these seabirds will die and therefore there's concern for the suffering of those marine animals. There's a difference in that kind of concern and the concern just that it's beauty or that it's literally trashing something that's sacred, the earth and the natural world. You understand? So, again, Four Noble Truths becomes a normalized paradigm. It limits, can limit the range of our concern of what, what goes into what we might call ethical concern in terms of how we live and how we relate to the earth. Um, air pollution as well. Now, in England and uh, in certain countries, uh, many countries, it's really, really a big issue, with, especially with burning diesel, um, diesel cars, etc. But the focus is often on the health, you know, understandably, um, especially the health of children. And so, it, uh, you know, that's a, obviously a real concern. Um, but there's still a difference um, in the range of care and the uh, the actual object of what's cared about. So I care for the, the health of my children. They might get asthma or they might get this or that. Um, organic problem and that's why I care about air pollution versus is there not just from a certain perspective in from my soul my the sensitivity of my soul there's just something wrong with air smelling that way smelling of diesel fumes smelling of coal fumes there's something um, sacrosanct that has been um, that is being tarnished that way that is not being respected beauty, the beauty of just simple fresh air and the fragrances of, of, of life are not being respected. It's a different um, concern. And in England, I don't know if they're still around, but certainly I remember from my childhood the slogan, keep Britain tidy, asking people to pick up litter and put things in, in trash bins, etc. Keep Britain tidy, I notice a couple of things about that. One, it doesn't say keep Britain beautiful. Keep Britain beautiful. Uh, there's, there's not in the larger culture uh, this um, kind of respect for beauty. Beauty doesn't have the same place and the same kind of depth that it could have. It's only that it does in the soul-making and paradigm, for example. And also notice it's keep Britain beauty as opposed to keep the earth beauty. That's a narrow nationalistic um, view there. So there's ways that, again, we're just talking about insight meditation tradition right now, mostly our Buddha Dharma, and ways that with all the gifts and all the bounty and, and um, benefits that it can bring can also be limited like any any perspective any tradition any conceptual framework any any um, paradigm of practice can be limited will be limited and if we expand the scope of dharma to include more soul making dharma ideas and perspectives and paradigms then then with that there's a corresponding expansion in in many different ways uh, many possible different ways of our ethical range, sensibility, concern, action, view.
let's point out another difference, or a few more differences, actually. I, uh, I remember, I don't know if I've used this language so much in the last, let's say, couple of years, but I used to talk a lot about the image being primary. People used to ask, what do you mean when you say the image is primary? What do you mean? Um, so I was talking with someone the other day, and she had um, a very beautiful image, a very touching image for her of a... Uh, just the, the the feathery breast of a bird um, coming into contact with her heart and pressing up against her, and there was a tremendous amount of compassion wrapped up in that image. Very very beautiful, and it um, opened the floodgates of of um, some grief in a, in a very healing way. Um, but she said to me that she realised that the grief that she had been feeling prior to that image. She, there was some grief, but she wasn't. She was. Is it this? Is it that? What's What's the grief? Um, none of None of the kind of reasons that she was giving, that the mind was giving herself for what the grief is for, that it was landing on explaining the grief, seemed kind of adequate. And then she recognised that actually it was grief at being out of contact with this angel. So it wasn't caused by this or that in the life or this or that happening or, or being lost, etc. There was actually, in the contact with this image, there was the recognition that the grief uh, that had been there in her heart was a grief at being out of contact with, with an angel. So in other words, the image is primary, and in this case its absence is the primary uh, cause, if you like, or condition for, for grief to arise rather than something in the life. So our emotions are coming, um, in this view, that image is primary, our emotions are coming more from, from the image. Our actions, our choices are coming more from an image. And sometimes we don't even, not even quite conscious what the image is. The image is what's primary. The image is um, what drives us. The image is the, not primary in time, as so much as primary in, in fundamental importance. Again, we're not stating that as a kind of dogmatic uh, assertion, as kind of in, in some way finally or ultimately true. It's a way of looking. It's a way of conceiving. It's a certain logos that we can move in and out of. But actually it has a lot of um, both explanatory power and also soul-making power when we, when we start to see our lives that way. Not just our emotions, our minds, our inspirations, as I said, our actions, choices, our sensibilities our love, the image is primary. I'm mentioning it now partly um, because this person was also then at a separate time relating to me uh, over over a period of time. There was a lot of, actually long many years, there was a lot of concern, very beautiful concern with social just, different social justice issues. And sometimes... Um, she would feel herself really in a quandary, torn between how should I, how should I choose, how should I present this social justice issue? What's my responsibility here? If I do this, then I'm failing on that. If I do that, I'm failing on this. Um, and really trying to do the best uh, that she could in in relation to these, you know, really difficult, ongoing, larger social justice issues. And an image came to her of a, the Black Madonna, and. Um, She's, this, this image was very connected with her 
care for, a deep concern and commitment to working on social justice issues, certain social justice issues. And she started to realize in working with this image, the sense was that her primary duty was to this black Madonna. And this black Madonna, as I said, was, it was, um, uh, or let's, let's put it this way, her dedication to social justice and to addressing issues of social justice and voicing them and working towards um, uh, better, better solutions and opening them out, her dedication to social justice issues was an echo, uh, was part of the infinite echoing and mirroring um, of, in her life, of this a black Madonna image. And in a way, what she came to realize was her primary duty was to the black Madonna. And the refraction of that primary duty into her life uh, uh, was the expression of her, again, her work on her care about these social justice issues. Rather than the typical way of thinking is the other way around. That um, her primary commitment is to to addressing this fact or that fact of a social situation, um, or this person or that person, um, in and in seeing it this way, that the the actual the primary duty was to the image, in this case the Black Madonna, that in in some way sort of encapsulated and echoed and held and uh, illuminated and was related to with care. Um, these social justice issues in regard in realizing that the duty was to the the primary duty was to the black Madonna the ad, the kind of unhelpful agitation that she was feeling around certain, what to choose in terms of this how to act how to speak when to say this what to do in this situation around there were very specific things which you don't need to go into but her her unhelpful agitation just subsided and her whole relationship to that whole set of issues and what was coming up in the in the community context that she was having to deal with, um, it, it became much more workable, much simpler. All the depth, all the passion, all the, the beauty of her involvement and commitment was still there, but without the kind of unhelpful um, agitation that went with it. So again, when we talk, we were talking really just about what are the ways that um, imaginal practice, as we've talked about it so far, can can augment and expand and supplement the the ways we already have of relating to ethical issues. If we keep going, you know, another one we've I've already touched on it, but I'll say it again because it's so important is. Um, Whose, whose grief is it that I feel in my heart for the earth? What we're doing to the earth. Massive, massive changes on a you know, geological time scales. Whose grief is it? Whose rage? Whose outrage? Whose indignation? Whose love for the earth? Whose rage at species loss. If I'm relating to the whole thing in in a, in a way, I'm sensing the whole thing with soul, sensing the the situation, the plight of the earth, the plight of the species, the plight of humanity, and my heart, and my emotions. If I can find a way 
to sense all that with soul, then what passes through my heart, it might come from an image, from an intrapsychic image, it might come in more globally sensing the whole situation with, with soul, I start to feel that that those aspects of that whole situation that I call my emotions, that are my emotions, my heart, they start to get, be sensed as divine. Whose grief, whose rage, whose love? Yes, it's mine, of course. Yes, it's anatta, it's not mine, of course. Both perspectives valuable. And a third one, it's, it's, the, it's the Buddha natures, it's, it's the divinities, it's gods. It's coming through my heart. My heart, my grief is an instrument of the divine care. And as such, the divine, the Buddha nature, needs me to feel this grief. And, you know, sometimes that's what it can feel like, that the scope of the, the problems um, is so huge, just on a planetary scale, but also on a soul level. It's bigger than how we usually feel ourselves to be. The emotion there is bigger than mine me and mine. Now, again, of course, there's the possibility of delusion with all that, especially if I take uh, any of those, my, my rage or grief or eros, and I just rationalize it by calling it um, divine, and then that makes excuses for me to either indulge in it or sink in it or act out or whatever. Of course, there's a possibility of delusional rationalization. But again, if we're talking about authentic sensing the soul, or at least moving more in that direction, the authentic imaginal, then this will be more authentic and genuine. And it adds the, the whole dimensionality to the very organ, the very instrument of the heart, and the very difficult feelings we're going, to, going through, if they're grief or rage or whatever, moral indignation, that kind of passion. It adds the... the dimensionality and the divinity there and that gives space and it gives an anchoring in something beyond it's enormously um, liberating and helpful and empowering and um, soul making and, and beautiful it's in all these areas self, other, world, eros, time and other, other aspects, beauty, like we talked about, sacredness. We can expand them all um, with the help of soul-making dharma paradigms and what they bring in to flesh out and enrich and dimensionalize our, our sense of um, ethics and our whole, uh, the whole movement of the moral life within us. And what we respond to, what we see, what we care for, how we act, how we choose. So I think there is a case uh, to be made that the usual ways in our contemporary society and cultures that we conceive of and sense the self and also the world, both the self and the world, are not always, but for many of us, not quite adequate to the, the complexity and the difficulty and the demand of the challenges that, that we face, especially with regard to things like climate change and species loss. And there's kind of huge moral issues there. And it might also be 
as we're saying, that even within certain subcultures, like like the Dharma or insight meditation tradition or whatever, that again, the usual ways of sensing and conceiving of the self and of the world are not quite adequate. Not for everyone, but for many people. They need they need some some other ways to open out the sense of self and world, and those ways, those other ways might become platforms of support for opening up the moral sensibility and, and the, the power to act and the capacity to act, the potential. So it's interesting, you know, um, if we talk about climate change and species extinction, it's hard to imagine a kind of Hollywood movie about that that really would galvanize things, you know, in terms of speaking to people. It's not really a personal story in that sense. So you can get earthquake movies and volcano movies, etc., and the focus is in, on the individual hero and maybe his or her family and what they go through. And it, it gets shrunk down to a personal, I don't know what they call, action movie or catastrophe movie or whatever. But something like climate change and species loss is, is much more than a personal story can ever really get hold of. It's not really on that level. And yet in our society, that because of the culture of individualism, that that becomes um, a kind of dominant way that we think about things, and it becomes it becomes a way that's the easiest for people to get moved and get galvanized and, and relate to something. But the contemporary sense of self may not be uh, may not be adequate. It's not personal in that way. Um, a a worldview that all is one also may not be adequate. Or, a, say, a certain kind of dharmic practice where uh, the story and the self is kind of atomized into sensations and mind states or whatever. Um, that that kind of lens also won't be very helpful when I look at the whole issue of climate change. It's too microscopic. It's missing the bigger uh, ethical issues there. I mean, it might be helpful in part in terms of navigating some emotions or getting clear about what the values are as a stepping stone. So in all kinds of ways, different... Self-sense, different world sense, different emotional sense, sense of the emotions. In uh, many cases, need to be need to be brought in, need to be allowed and included to to allow um, a more appropriate response. So, do we need expanded? Um, expanding our sense of self, our view of self, beyond the kind of what I called, I think, immature individualism of um, of our larger contemporary cont- culture. Do we need a kind of expanded worldview, given more dimension, given um, a different kind of ontology, etc.? And these things are hard to shift, you know. I don't know quite how they shift. And it was interesting, I watched a video uh, of an interview uh, of uh, Polly Higgins, who died recently, very wonderful woman. She was a lawyer 
campaigning for many years. She was only, I think, 49 when she died. Um, and uh, she was a lawyer campaigning for many years to try and get ecocide, in other words, the destruction of ecosystems, recognized as a, as a crime as, uh, by the UN and, uh, as, uh, and by international law. So that was her project as a, as a lawyer, and she put really lovely woman and tremendous work in that. And she died just just a few months ago, in fact. But I was watching this interview, and she was being interviewed by someone who was extremely sympathetic to what she was doing. But what struck me was, as the interview went on, it wasn't that long. Um, almost immediately, the uh, explanation of what why it was important, why getting a law on ecocide uh, was important. The explanation sort of slid um, from this idea uh, that nature itself needs to be respected. Ecosystems uh, are sacred and need to be respected and need to be given the same rights as we give humans legally. Um, It kind of slid to the uh, rationalization, the reasoning underpinning this attempt to get uh, an ecocide law passed was that because ecosystems support us, they support humanity, we rely on nature, we rely on the bees pollinating uh, the the plants and the flowers so that we can eat, etc. And we rely on the water to drink, etc. All that. Um, And I'm pretty sure that wasn't the only reason, and maybe not even the main reason, why she was campaigning for it. But in the conversation, it was two sympathetic people who cared about this issue and wanted to support it. How the dialogue slipped to a language that made the human beings um, practical needs for health and livelihood the most important ones. And it struck me, it wasn't, it was sort of, it just slid like that. Um, but this whole that whole movement that she was trying to support to to, to get a law passed by the UN uh, against ecocide and to actually frame it as even a, a crime that people understood, um, it raises interesting ontological questions. We can't get away from ontology and metaphysics with all this, and I don't think there's a way of talking about ethics deeply without talking about ontologies. But we'll come back to that. So it raises this idea about an ecocide law uh, via the UN, raises, to me, interesting ontological questions as much as ethical ones. Because, um, if you think about it, such a law and the kind of ideas underpinning it would be different than a law for, I don't know, animal rights, for example. Or um, choices like vegetarianism because of reasons of compassion for the suffering of individual animals. I don't want to eat meat because because that involves that animal suffering when it's slaughtered, or how it's kept, or, or whatever. But when we talk about something like ecocide, we're talking about an ecosystem. That's not an individual animal. It's, it's not even a collection of animals. It's not this animal, it's not that tree. It's the system, it, which in a way has life, I suppose, and even... Uh, you could talk about it in the way that a system of cells in the body has uh, can be alive, um, even while maybe individual cells are, are dead or dying. Um, 
But a system is something different, and it caring for an ecosystem, uh, giving right, recognizing um, rights for an ecosystem, and then implementing in law rights because they're re- uh, for an ecosystem because they've recognized morally those rights, implies a kind of respect and reverence for the order and harmony and integrity of nature's functioning. It's, I don't know, life process. And inevitably, this that rests on, such an idea rests on or, or draws in a kind of cosmology, anthropology, and again, metaphysics. Yeah? Um, so... Grief at species loss or plummeting numbers of species. Uh, so many bird species, for example, or insect species are uh, hugely reduced in numbers, although the species itself is not technically critically endangered yet. But the grief, the, the heart's response at that, um, is, I would, I don't know, is it a different grief resting on a different sensibility? It's a particular ethical care that is different, um, uh, though not, you know, contradictory to a care for the suffering or death of an individual animal. That orca mother carrying around its dead calf for days or weeks in the oceans that was in the news a little while ago, and a lot of clicks on on that piece of news because there's the empathy with that individual orca mother and her calf, the suffering there. But grief at species loss seems to me a different kind of sensibility. And it's something slightly different is happening in the heart, in the soul, actually. And and it, as I said, it calls calls forth or, or involves or demands a different kind of ontology and metaphysics, an expanded ontology and metaphysics, for us to actually um, respect that. So all these issues are tied together. They're not. They're not actually that simple. Now some of this is already changing, and um, I don't know if you knew this, but a corporation, actually in law in most countries, or even in international law, is has the same for legal purposes, it's recognized as a person. So a multinational corporation, ExxonMobil or whatever, some of these other large corporations, are te- technically, legally, have the same status as a person, the same, the same legal rights as a person. So that's been the case for many, many years. Um, a river, for example, does not, for the most part, but it is starting to change. Um, or rather, there are a few instances where it's starting to change. But if you just think, what's going on there? That, again, what's the... What's the going back to the point I made in the beginning of this talk, what's the relationship between law and ethics? And originally there was supposed to be a very, a very close, tight-knit congruence there. But in many ways they seem to have um, kind of drifted apart what are the ethics about um, the law that turns away refugee boats? I mean, it's a law. One is protecting... I, one can make a link with ethics, but it becomes increasingly tenuous. 
or protecting corporate rights um, over their responsibility to take care of the environment. You can trace an ethical reason. You can rationalize that kind of law ethically or that kind of limited limitation on law ethically. But the, the connection between law and ethics um, can has, I think, become increasingly tenuous, increasingly sort of divorced. Some of this is starting to change. Um, and I was reading... Um, where was it? In New Zealand, for instance... Um, the Waikato River was given personhood legally, um, which is anyway how the indigenous Maori culture uh, views it. it. It views it as a living being, as a person, because it senses it with soul. I mean, in some regards, there's going to be differences there, of course. And they say, I am the river, and the river is me. How can the river look after me if I don't look after it? And um, there's other places... I wrote them down, it's fine. Um, uh, where was it? Um, also the the uh, Mount Taranaki, also in New Zealand, and the Huanganui River, if I'm saying that right. This is just recent, in the last couple of years. These are... that. Mount Taranaki and, and the Wanganui River are both sacred sacred to their people, the indigenous peoples there. And actually earlier than that, in 2014, um, legal personhood was granted to the Te Urawara forest and gave the local Maori tribes um, shared guardianship of that forest as part of their sensibility and their sense of duty and responsibility anyway. In India, the... Um, I think it was the Ganges and the Yamuna, um, partly legally stimulated by what happened in New Zealand, I think, because it's all Commonwealth and therefore bound by similar laws, or there's some kind of legal structure that binds New Zealand and and India as Commonwealth countries, um, I think. Um, the Ganges and the Yamuna were um, granted person personhood status legally. So there's the beginnings of, of, of changes here. And in um, Toledo, on L- Lake Erie, uh, there were, I think it's actually past now, um, but it was, <coughs> the residents of Toledo were also petitioning to sue polluters on behalf of the lake and for that um Lake to be recognised uh, with with uh, legal rights as a person would be. Um, I'm not sure if the argument in Toledo was again uh, uh, to do with human um, the effects on humans and the children's health from if the lake water was polluted. So it's it's I mean it's still really great and, and wonderful, but it's slightly different. Again, ontologically, it's slightly different, or actually significantly different. So there's the beginnings of change here, but really, um, what do we need um, a, a an expanded ontology, epistemology, metaphysics, cosmology, anthropology, self-sense, all of that? And again, not everyone is going to need this. It won't work for everyone, but there's there's you know, for many people, 
that might be a really significant um, support, that kind of expansion. Remember that Moscovici quote, questions of epistemology are questions are also questions of social order. Questions of epistemology are also questions of social order. And therefore questions of ontology are also questions of social order. And, and it's, it's um, glare, increasingly and glaringly obvious now with the, the um, tragedies unfolding around us. So how can we um, begin to sense and think and feel in different ways, in ways that do expand uh, the ontology, the epistemology, the metaphysics, the cosmology, the anthropology, the sense of existence, the sense of human being, the sense of the the life and the being of the earth and, and nature and the species. And again, I wouldn't say it's the solution. It's one possibility. Sensing the souls, one possibility, one kind of paradigm uh, that can open up um, that kind of expansion and change. And then on top of that uh, change and expansion in the ontology of all that comes a change in sensibility and therefore a change in view and action and law and human choices. One possibility. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.